Hello, and welcome to the Meaning of Life podcast, hosted by Dr. Susie Farello. Dr. Farello is an associate professor at California State University, East Bay. She does philosophy based on lived experience and works as a philosophical counselor. You can find some of her work online on academia.edu and psychology today. Thank you. It's my great pleasure to have today Dina Lin. Uh, she is a Dr. Dina Lin, is from the San Francisco Bay Area and teaches philosophy and comparative religion at a variety of different universities in the area. Lots of universities in the area, actually. She teaches uh, a diverse array of courses covering themes emanating from the history of philosophy, Eastern and Western philosophical and religious traditions, issues in social justice and race, feminist philosophy, and ethics. She received her PhD in philosophy of religion and theology from Clermont Graduate University in 2013 and her BA in philosophy from the University of San Francisco. When Dina isn't teaching, she loves spending time with her two young kids, reading, traveling, hiking, as well as playing and coaching soccer. Wow. (laughs) So it's a great pleasure for me to have you here, Dina. Thanks for accepting my invitation. Lovely to be here. So let's get started. Um, I know you just a a little and I'm impressed with the uh, things that you do. I mean, not only just uh, teaching, because uh, you teach from, uh, yeah, uh, contemporary study of philosophy to Eastern uh, philosophy and religious tradition. Uh, You are very active in uh, making uh, your classes uh, as um, equal as possible in uh, filling the gap uh, with uh, anti-racist pedagogy or uh, with the INSPIRE program. How did you get here? I mean, how did you manage to, you know, to combine philosophy uh, with all these things, uh, with uh, a religious tradition, uh, with uh, a pedagogy that is that smart? Uh, uh, what's your, uh, yeah, if I may, your personal relationship with philosophy? And did that make you happier? Uh, yeah. So I think I think one way to start. Uh, the the story would be um, how I came to study philosophy. And that was um, in my undergrad. I was an undeclared major. And I came across, you know, I had to take, I was going to a Jesuit undergraduate school and I had to take uh, philosophy for my GE. And I took it from someone who was so passionate, uh, Robert Makis about the Mm -hmm. material and just Mm -hmm. loved it and exuded that. And anybody who knew anything about him, they just knew that he was just someone who loved, it's kind of like a Socratic kind of love for the Mm -hmm. discipline. And Mm -hmm. um, he said, you know, I think you have a knack for this. And that was the first Mm -hmm. time a professor had ever said I had a knack for anything. You know, I wasn't a bad (laughs) student, but I wasn't like Uh a straight A student either. Um, And so I... Yeah, I clung to that. And um, and as far as like religion goes, um, the reason why I started um, studying religion is because I converted uh, my Mm. senior year of my undergrad to Christianity. I grew up atheist. Um, I wasn't a fundamentalist atheist, but Mm -hmm. I grew up with no religion because uh, my father is Hindu and my Mm -hmm. mother was Catholic. 
And so we, me and my brothers, we grew up without any kind of faith tradition. And um, it's not easy to meld those two. And, (laughs) and so um, I, but I had a lot of questions. I always had this kind of philosophical mind to ask questions and what's, what's meaning and what's my purpose. And I was always a deep thinker before I probably should have been um, because Mm. I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about it. But, um, but yeah, in my undergrad, that's when that started happening. And the thing is, is because I come from such a different variety um, of, of faith traditions from my parents, becoming Christian was a bit problematic because, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm taught by these fire and brimstone Christians that only we are going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Other people are not. And I'm like, well, that means my father is not, my brothers are not like, Mm. you know, like all these people I love are all of a sudden not gonna, Mm -hmm. (laughs) aren't under God's love. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I started studying other scriptures. Mm. I, I kind of, you know, along with learning the Bible, I was also exposing myself to other faith traditions. And, um, and so I, was always just very curious and always an avid reader. And I uh, ended up moving to China for <laughs> four years <laughs> after I graduated from, from U- USF. I moved to China and uh-huh. I taught English and it was uh-huh. there. They said, teach whatever you want. And so I taught world religions and that was actually not a good wow. idea because the communists were like, we don't really want you to teach this. You can teach other things, but just don't teach this. But I was What's really passionate China, about it. Were you? Uh, outside of Beijing. Okay. So I was really kind of excited about, I, I, I was like, I think I want to teach. I think maybe I have a gift. Ah. Like, I think this is something that really feeds me because I was in corporate America. I was doing marketing. I was doing paralegal work. Mm. I was not something that was, mm-hmm. was kind of soul crushing because I was like, mm-hmm. I can do it. I can do it fast, but it didn't have any meaning for me because I always had this philosophical mind. And so, mm. you know, I decided to, to come back and do my GRE and apply to grad school and started with just religious studies, but then figuring out that that's probably not going to get me a good enough job just having my master's so then I did philosophy religion theology too and what did you end up teaching then in China uh it was just English like conversational Uh, but like I like to do it thematic and topical so I was teaching them about like religions um you managed to put something uh, in there (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so and so today do you define yourself uh, as a Christian or uh, uh it's hard huh? um, yeah i i mean i definitely think that my language to the ultimate mm-hmm. is through christianity mm-hmm. um and i think i think people have different keys not that we ever right. fully, fully unlock like all the different mm-hmm. aspects of the divine but i think we have different approaches and i think that is my approach um, but I also am really into um, Ram Das. I'm really into like Buddhist perspectives on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and I see beauty in all the different faith traditions, to be honest. But I think you can't possibly practice all of them. So no. Um, and nor would you. Right. Like you need depth as well. So um, 
that's I'm kind of different. Why did you choose why did you choose Christianity? And what Christianity and not uh, a specific uh, uh, declension of Christianity? Um, well, it, it was a friend of mine that exposed me mm. to it. And she brought me to church and she brought me to mm. university and learning about mm. the Bible and stuff. And um, yeah, I was just really curious at the time. I think I think it's hard to say that you find your religion. I think it finds you too yeah mm-hmm. like you know so right. yeah um and I think you have to be willing to be open and and sometimes things happen in life that that open you up and so yeah just timing and all of that so was that uh, a particular moment of your life or was uh, in process was a long time um yeah I mean I had a metaf- I remember I had a medieval philosophy professor and he was the first professor I had that I could like ask questions about God and he wasn't Mm. like defensive because he's a philosopher Ah, ah, and uh that's how I felt safe asking questions because I think you know you ask kind of a lay practitioner they get defensive about their faith Mm -hmm. because I don't think they've necessarily thought about why they believe what they mm-hmm. believe or thought about it from a, a different kind of neutral stance. And he was able to talk to me about it. And I was like, wow, like, mm-hmm. like it gave me respect for it. I should say as a choice. And what do you believe in what you believe and what you, what you believe in specifically? <laughs> Sorry, we are, I'm really curious. What do you mean? What do I believe in? Like, uh, because uh, uh, you said that not necessarily philosophy professor uh, uh, reflect on why do be- they believe uh, in what they believe. And so now I'm curious uh, to know from you, why do you believe in what you believe? And what is the what you believe in? Well, I believe that God exists. I believe mm-hmm. that God is love. Mm-hmm. I believe that kind of all of the different um, monotheistic attributes of the divine mm-hmm. that, that God encompasses all of that and is also mm-hmm. beyond what we can ever possibly fathom. And that, you know, I believe that I'm destined to kind of <clears throat> live out a life in accordance with a greater meaning. And that brings incredible, an incredible amount of meaning and purpose to what I, I do. And how I do what I do. And this gives also a sense of peace and happiness, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, is it a little bit like the Pascal uh, wage? I mean, uh, why not? It's, uh... it's, a blind, it's a blind faith. It's a Kierkegaardian leap. And, and I think ultimately we're finite. You know, how are we ever going to possibly know? But you kind of have to... Yeah, like Pascal, weigh the weigh the pros and cons for your life. And I think if you are interpreting God moving in your life, it's an incredibly powerful way of seeing things. Um, and again, it's it's a kind of discernment that I didn't have before. You're kind of switching on some kind of light switch, um, and you're seeing things differently. Uh, yeah, because faith is not something that you can learn. It's uh, a gift. Um, and uh, if you receive this gift, it gives you serenity. I mean, it might. It, no, it's not 
a given, but it can, it might. Uh, and you cannot learn. It's, uh, yeah, as you were saying, it, it's an encounter. Mm-hmm. When did, uh, how old were you when this uh, encounter happened? Uh, I guess 2021. 20, oh, well, early in life. Wow. Yeah. And your children, are they now believing in something or do you give them space? Sorry if um, no, um, want to answer. No, I can. Of course. I, it's tough. Um, I did, was taking them to church at a certain point. I was taking them to Sunday school and stuff. And I just felt like they're just learning to memorize scripture, mm-hmm. learning how to color things with Jesus on it. Yeah. You know, like no. I just didn't feel like, <laughs> yeah. and I also, uh-huh. I also was volunteering and I was teaching the middle schoolers and they didn't ah. really want them to ask a lot of questions. Uh-huh. Um, oh, and so for pleasant. me, and so for me, I think it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Like that particular thing for my kids. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely want them to believe in a higher power, but mm-hmm. I also want them to free to, the freedom to discover that for themselves. And I think mm-hmm. what's hard too is that I don't, I look at things from a very different perspective. <laughs> um, I see a lot of problematic things in the Bible. Um, I see mm-hmm. a lot of problematic interpretations. I am definitely here when they have questions about it. I do pray. Mm-hmm. I pray with my daughter more than I do with my son. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when things happen, I said, you know, we got to pray for your cousin. We got to pray for, mm-hmm. you know, they need healing, whatever. And we do that, you know. Um, and my my son was going to a Christian school and they were basically having him memorize things again. And what they were having him memorize, I was like, mm-hmm you know? Yeah. So, um, I just think it should be, faith should be a conversation, um, and should have freedom in it and creativity. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's hard, it's hard, you know, just talking to them about Easter, like death and resurrection and crucifix, like it's really like deep stuff. Um, but when it comes to Christmas and stuff, like, absolutely, they need to know that, that God has graced us, you know, and that it's that he has given us a gift. That's why we're gift giving, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. that's a beautiful aspect of Christmas. It's absolutely been exacerbated by capitalism where you just Mm. have Santa Claus and all these, you know, Easter bunnies, whatever. Um, so you lose kind of the depth and the meaning. Um, and those are things that I want them to take up, but I, but it's tough. It's tough. Um, yeah, I'm not a great, probably (laughs) Sunday school teacher for them right now, but fortunately I do want them, I I, I, I do want them to have the freedom to decide for themselves. Well, already giving them the freedom to believe in a higher power is, um, you know, a way out from, uh, I'd say from a psychological perspective, depression, narcissism, um, self-harming behaviors, uh, when uh, you realize that uh, your world uh, is not just you and uh, there's something greater, uh, more difficult to understand uh, taking care of, uh, taking care or not, uh, depending on, of course, uh, the religious point of view. 
of all that is moving. And uh, I, I, I don't know, personally, I think it's uh, when I discovered that in my life, I was older than you, way older in my early 30s. It was a huge relief. <laughs> it was an incredible Yeah, relief. it can be. It should be, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not, and I think kids nowadays, certainly in my classrooms, like just teaching mm. today, I'm like, guys, it's Friday. Like who's happy? And they're like, you know, and I'm like, gosh, like I feel like I was much happier in my undergrad because that's actually where I went to undergrad is where I'm teaching. And so uh, yeah. I, I think they're caring a lot they're carrying a lot and um and I think faith can be a means to to give yourself a sense of peace and serenity you know like some say faith is this you know like like Marx you know opium of the masses or a numbing Mm -hmm. mechanism and things like that but we also understand that there's a lot of numbing mechanisms that we have we have our cell phones we have our TikToks we have our Netflix we have our alcohols and drugs like there's a lot of ways Mm -hmm. in which we numb ourselves um and so what is what is more harmful and of course there's like harmful versions of faith absolutely um but i think there's also beautiful versions of faith that actually tell you how to relate to your neighbor in really ethical ways have Mm -hmm. compassion and those are things that we're not necessarily taught in the world in a world of no. competition and individuality and autonomy mm-hmm. as opposed to interrelatedness and interdependence and you know is there a, a philosopher uh, that you encounter that manage to combine uh, these aspects uh, uh, and that you love teaching and uh, it it manages to convey the message or uh, do you send these messages in uh, <laughs> in other ways, other through other fields? Um, I think I think what the the philosopher that has inspired me the most is Judith Butler, and I mm-hmm. think she is the one that, mm-hmm. like any philosopher, your philosopher too, is someone who maybe her who's her mm-hmm. or someone like someone who feeds mm-hmm. you yep. and your perspective. Mm-hmm. And so for me. It's absolutely her. Once I found her, Mm. I was able to see the world or make sense of things in the way that I felt like I was supposed to, basically. That's great. Um, But she's not, yeah, she's not super religious. She would call herself Jewish, right? But Uh she doesn't necessarily talk about God too much in her work. Um, But her work is definitely about social justice and Mm -hmm. understanding that we're all mutually vulnerable and mutually grievable and precarious and um just her vision of a social ontology where everybody is understood as equal um regardless of sexual orientation and race and uh, status um it's just a beautiful vision. And I think using that framework, she talks about how we frame things and who's left outside the frame and who is the one creating the frame, right? And having that perspective that you're always kind of situated and located and historicized, mm-hmm. um, that really kind of fed me and spoke to me and helped me understand my own stuff. And I think that that's always feeding kind of the way that I I go about things epistemologically about how it is that I'm kind of 
feeding my students to have them understand like what is your frame how is it that you're seeing things um you know today I was asking my students I like you know I was teaching them about Rosemary Ruther's feminist theology and I said Mm -hmm. a lot of you guys might have problems with talking about God as a mother why is that do you know why that is I said it's not that Mm -hmm. you're not wrong to be uncomfortable you're not Mm -hmm. wrong to think a goddess is weird because you're not conditioned to think that way. Scripture doesn't say God, God is a mother, right? But where does that come from? Right? Where does that uncomfort come from? Right? And why are we comfortable with God, the father? And why are we comfortable with male authority? Uh, You know, and, and also what are the consequences of that? Our comfort, right? And what are the consequences of our discomfort? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Mm-mm. Yeah. And it, I think it takes sometimes a woman doing philosophy and a woman doing theology <laughs> to like, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. how are we seeing things? Because that's not who, that's not how I see things from that cis white male perspective. Right. I see things differently mm-hmm. and my difference isn't wrong. It's just not your, your vision of the hegemony, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been so used to the father who is always a he and uh, any form of authority comes from a he, any form of nurturing comes from a she. And so at least uh, what I see from my classes, then uh, women would tend to take uh, the leadership uh, uh, much less uh, than men and men are, uh, boys are crushed under the sense of responsibility and having to mimic uh, uh, all the leadership. How, yeah, I I, I saw that uh, you participated in um, different um, uh, trainings uh, to close the gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you gain any uh, solution that uh, you think, uh, you know, any quick message that we can, uh, quick or not quick, we have time uh, to pass uh, through younger generations to, you know, to help them feeling, uh, yeah, equal in the classroom? Uh, or in the classroom, yeah, but also, yeah, equal in uh, taking uh, taking advantage, taking part of life. Uh, because I noticed, that especially our students, do not feel uh, uh, that they belong to society. Uh, there is a kind of automatism for which, uh, okay. Um, uh, what matters in the society, what matters in life uh, uh, cannot be decided by me uh, because uh, I'm not important enough. Uh, mm. And then they tend to see themselves at the margins. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. I think it's an age thing too, right? Like, Might be. you know, Might be. adolescence, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of still in that phase. I mean, I didn't know anything in undergrad like I don't know how you're supposed to pick a major when you're 18 years old oh God. no you know it's like a life path of a choice right a life yeah. path I don't know and yeah. you know I tell them I said you know I think the average person changes their career eight times or something like that so if you make a mistake it's gonna be okay you know like right it's gonna be okay like you'll it life will work itself out and if you think that life is gonna be this like beautiful 
kind of grasp. Like, yeah, it's not going to be like that. Life is is twists and turns and loop de loops, and you can't you can't know. And and listen, the mystery shouldn't give you anxiety. It, you just have to accept that that's part of life. Um, what was the question? <laughs> no, you're saying no. The message arrived because uh, <laughs> you are. <laughs> no, no, yeah. you are answering. Uh, yeah. So taking uh, life not as uh, a linear trajectory, expecting uh, turns, uh, uh, rejections. Uh, yeah, but you're, I think you were asking about equity stuff. Like, how does that translate into the also, classroom? Too, yeah, right? yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've been learning recently is um and and really like i just finished this book as part of my pedagogy program it's called four brown girls okay. with sharp edges and tender hearts by priska mm-hmm. dorcas Malvika, ah, yeah. rodriguez and um yeah. especially for the so. students we serve really important um but what she does is she's teaching all these concepts through an auto ethnographical approach. So she's using her life's circumstances and her experiences to teach these different concepts. So she'll teach um, about imposter syndrome and talk about how she felt like she didn't belong. She actually got her, her, um, she went to graduate school at Vanderbilt, which is known to be this really liberal theological school. Uh But she's like, yeah, it's liberal, but it's white liberalism. which is basically uh-huh. these white academics who are allies, but not mm-hmm. disruptors, right? Um, and just really powerful, the ways in which she spoke about not feeling like she fit in. Um, I'm sure you probably can understand too, you and I have had some conversations about being yeah. a woman, being a young woman academic, oh, yeah. how it is that we are perceived on Rate My Professor. Like she didn't, she didn't wear her hair down or she like, it's all based on looks, not about what ideas mm-hmm. um, and men's mm-hmm. rate. My professor would be based on, you know, what they're actually teaching, <laughs> which is what yeah. it should be based on. Um, yeah. And so this book really kind of enlightened me about the ways in which we are gatekeeping. Ah. So mm-hmm. we as professors are, mm-hmm. have in our hands the ability to give mm-hmm. the degree or not. I mean, we are not presidents of the university. Don't get me wrong. We are one class, but that one class, I've had students in my classes, my critical thinking class. She's like, I've taken this three times. And I'm like, why do you have to take this class three times? I don't ask her this, but I'm thinking this, like, what is it that we're doing to create this class in such a challenging way that students have to take it three times? Exactly. And so just asking yourself that question, like, am I making this class passable? Am I making it so that people get A's? I remember taking a class in grad school and my grad professor's like, I never give A's. I just want to let you know. So if you happen to get one, think that you're like the bee's knees. And I was just like, I actually respected him for that. And that was actually something I was like, I'm going to do that because, yeah, that made me work really hard. Really? Right. Uh Uh You tell our students that. They will not try. They will not try. That is not a motivational statement. That means Mm -hmm. I'm going to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So know your audience. Who are you teaching? 
And so if, if we're teaching predominantly Latinx kids, which we are from mm-hmm. certain socio demographics, mm-hmm. we are not them. Mm-hmm. She says, you know, she, she had her undergrad in Florida, I believe. And she mm-hmm. said, you know, I felt like those professors got me. They spoke Spanglish. Wow. Like uh, they, uh-huh. she, she, she says, you know, in this book, I'm writing this book. This is my book. I am not going to italicize Spanish. When I italicize uh, my own, when I, when I italicize my own language, so I true. other, I other myself. Why do oh, I need God, to other myself? So I'm like, Susie, yes. write in Italian, right? right. I'm going to have to look yeah, it yeah. up, but I'm reading your book. That's your language, yeah. right? Yeah. And so she's yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. that spoke to me and I saw myself. So what happens when our students don't see themselves in us? What, what needs to happen is I think telling more stories. When we tell stories as human beings, there's a common ground that's reached because we all have a story. So she's teaching through her experiences. We should teach through ours. And we're blessed to be teaching philosophy, which is absolutely rich in storytelling. Well, the continental tradition, anyway. Um, But yeah, you know, like it's rich. And so we should Uh absolutely be be pulling from that. And and not only that, having the perspective that our students can teach us about these concepts. This is not a top-down approach. They should be part of the, the educational process. They are not empty vessels to be filled. This should be a two way street. And understanding that, you know, through, they can pull from their own experiences and not to yeah. other them, you know, think about like what we have them read. Like those aren't that, you know, and I know I need to diversify what it is I teach. I need to decolonize my stuff. Absolutely. Um, and I am working on that. Um, but it's, it's this, these past couple of years doing this work, I realized how colonized I am and it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable, but it's exciting to think about, well, does philosophy have a future? We have to give it a future. We need to be transdisciplinary. We need to be more broad-minded. We need to think outside of the canon. You know, like, who forms the canon? Mm-hmm. Well, your class, your critical thinking class was really, is really beautiful. I don't know if you keep it the way I saw it. I really loved how you accented the um, uh, emotional intelligence, which is something nobody cares about uh, often. So critical thinking is always a thought, uh, yeah, maybe that's uh, colonized as well, uh, uh, in these uh, very rigid, uh, straight uh, category, uh, in a kind of a very cold way to be right. Uh, adversarial so, adversarial right brava exactly yeah. very adversarial brava exactly yeah. yes yeah. and what i loved about uh, your uh, critical thinking class was uh, um, that you put your face you shared your life um, that uh, you chose a textbook that uh, uh, gave lots of importance to emotional intelligence uh, how to uh, think through your emotions uh, in a critical way because uh, they are rational as well. Uh, it's not that uh, because Descartes told us uh, that emotions are uh, weird fluid of our body, <laughs> we yeah. have uh, to dismiss them. Uh, I think this speaks to our uh, our students. This speaks certainly to me. Uh, yeah. 
I, I don't know what kind of feedback you had uh, in your classes, but it's a beautiful uh, twist to see. Yeah. Well, this is the first time I'm teaching this in person in a long time. Mm. And so, and, mm -hmm. and doing it this not top down model. So I'm having them do mm -hmm. skits and I'm having them do like interactions and um, really trying to get to that, the bias and the web of belief and like, you know, the metacognitive stuff, the self-reflection, like, and understanding that, geez, if I'm not curious about myself, how am I going to be curious about anybody else? And that's mm -hmm. also the root of civilized discourse is curiosity. So true. And we don't have it's curiosity so about people who don't have the same opinions as us, same beliefs as mm -hmm. us. We're not curious. We're like, you're scary. <laughs> and that's not, that's yeah. not going to, you know, that's not going to get us anywhere as a, as a society. We're only going to become more trenchant and polarized, you mm -hmm. know? Or people who cry, so at least that's what I notice in my philosophical counseling. If you cry, if you're emotional, if you are, um, yeah, emotional in one word, you are irrational, I shouldn't listen to you, uh, I shouldn't have anything to do. Which means that every time I feel emotional, I feel like crying, I would not share anything with anyone yeah. because uh, I'm an idiot because I'm being irrational, because I'm being uh, wrong. And so we feed uh, an unhappy uh, society in uh, thinking that, uh, yeah, critical thinking is just this uh, straight line. Yeah, but, it, but, it, but it, I think it comes down to also our, our understandings of gender and our understandings of mm. personhood. And how mm -hmm. dare you, Susie, like give in to those irrational emotions that you have? Like, of course you would. You're a woman, right? Like people would, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. it comes of from course. Back, of course. way back into the Greeks, right? Mm -hmm. And and we look at our society and it's like, it's not that men don't have emotions. They just don't have the ability to process them in any healthy way. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're feeling strongly, what happens is someone goes and shoots up a school or something like that, right? Yeah, really horrible that's that's toxic masculinity, you know, and we mm -hmm. see that exemplified over and over when our politicians and our athletes and, you know, like, do we have positive kind of representations of of manhood, whatever that is. Right. And I was telling my students today, I said, you guys are of a mm -hmm. generation that actually troubleshooted pronouns. And that's not that's something amazing. my generation yeah. did. Uh -huh. And I said, that's yeah. actually you can talk about how messed up the world is. You guys are making it better because you're actually understanding yep. how toxic gender can be. That mm -hmm. it is something that's a construct. You guys know that already. You don't have problems using they, them. Other generations are like, what are you talking about? But I also said, you guys are yeah. in a Bay Area bubble. Don't get me wrong. Like not everybody <laughs> your age thinks in the same way, right? <laughs> but I said, the fact that people do though, and it's becoming normalized is actually a beautiful thing. So, and I think they need to be reminded of that, that their generation so, is so. producing things. And um, because of course you always have the olders saying like, oh, they're falling apart or the people that are scared of gender and questioning it and scared about trans rights and scared about LGBTQ, you know, they'll have, there. there's just a lot of fear bubbling up about race as well. And it's like, Mm -hmm. They don't have that stuff. They learn different narratives. They're like, those are people too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but they're still in this world that's dominated 
those that are empowered think differently. And so it's frustrating and it can feel like discombobulating, I think, and can get you depressed. Yeah, it can get you depressed. Yeah, the level of depression among youth is skyrocketing. It's a, a serious concern for the WHO and for all of us. But I mean, it's becoming worldwide. You, have, have you heard of Jonathan Haidt's work? No. So he's doing a lot of work on uh, um, psychology and youth and relation uh, to technology. Uh, so particularly uh-huh. the generation, I think, 2012 and up or something when you're born. These are, mm. This is the generation that was born with cell phones. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he's talking about how, for instance, uh, girls have a higher rates of depression when they, oh. uh, because of social media, the social media that they're into is a lot of asynchronous stuff that seeks approval. And mm-hmm. boys are into social media and stuff, but it's more like gaming. So it's synchronous. Mm. And it's playing together with your friends. And so it's slightly healthier. Ah, And he also said, uh, so there's higher rates of depression than in generations before, but um, highest in liberal girls. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's going to come out with a book pretty soon. There's a lot of stuff that he's written. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, but he says, like, basically, <laughs> if you're under 16, you shouldn't have social media. It's impossible. No, I know. It's like, <laughs> makes I mean, it, yeah. It can be possible, but it's uh, very, very, very hard. Well, my 13 year old doesn't they, have a phone yet, uh, but yeah. Brava, you made it. <laughs> I got him a, I got him a watch, <laughs> though. So uh, it was a uh, nice medium, <laughs> I guess. Halfway. Look, uh, we are, wow, it's uh, already quite a bit that we're talking. Um, so I get close to my final uh, way too wide question, but it's uh, a must of this podcast. What's the meaning of life for you? If life has a meaning. <laughs> nice small question. I know. Um, I close up. What is the meaning of life? Well, I think it's a subjective thing. Very. And I think that this is something that for me, what brings mm-hmm. my life meaning um, is knowing that I'm using my gifts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not just using them, but honing them, um, learning how to change them, manipulate them so that I can impact people in more profound ways. I think as teachers, we have a profound responsibility especially teachers of philosophy, because we're affecting how they think about things like in a fundamental mm-hmm. way. And I think for me, what brings my life meaning is knowing that I have kind of a, a service oriented heart where I love to serve. If I have something that people need to know or a skill set, if I can teach you soccer, whatever, um, I love to do that because I feel like you could benefit from that and I'll have more soccer players or I'll have more philosophers Mm -hmm. or I'll have more people who are curious about religion or whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like knowing that I've had some kind of impact on the world in that way with how people think or how people play soccer or whatever it is, whatever it is I'm teaching Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. brings me profound meaning. And so I don't, I don't do it to be remembered. 
But I Mm -hmm. think the content of what I'm conveying, if that moves you and changes something in you um, for the better, that Mm -hmm. brings great meaning to me. That's beautiful. Did you always have it or uh, did you struggle to get there, to understand your gifts? To to know what my gift was? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think... I think, you know, knowing that it took going to China to really see that ah, maybe uh-huh. teaching was what I wanted leap. to do. And that was a big uh-huh. leap. Yeah. And that was like a whole life changing so scenario. Wow. It was scary. Yeah. It was scary. But I also, <laughs> that was God. I felt like God uh-huh. wanted me there. And, yeah. and that gives you the peace in mm-hmm. the midst of mm-hmm. the scariness, my pa- my parents were like, you're nuts. You're going to earn 500 bucks a month. Like, what are you doing? You're, you got this great job working downtown San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, like do that. I paid all this money for you to go to USF. And you're going to go <laughs> like live in China. Right. But, you know, like that's where I found my calling. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. Um, and I think sometimes people lack the ability to make a leap. Um, mm-hmm because it's too scary. And I think that's part of also how kids are being raised too. Like that's something he talks about Mm -hmm. of kids don't want to get driver's licenses and people and kids don't like to leave the house and go play in the park with their friends because they just stay home all the time on these devices. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of growing up is to do those things, to go and, and it's scary from a parent to be like, oh, I don't want you like going out and doing whatever. But at the same time, it's like you learn, you learn, you know, mm-hmm. and you take chances and you learn how to be responsible. But it's like if you've never had to do anything or you never wanted to do like, how are you going to be responsible? Right. So um, mm-hmm. it's like the Aristotelian, like, you know, you, you learn mm-hmm. virtue through doing it, you know, so mm-hmm. I had so many questions I thought you were going to ask me and you didn't ask me any of them. I was like, dang. (laughs) So sorry. I prefer always to go with the flow of what's going on. I know. That was a setup. You're like, I'm going to ask you these questions. (laughs) Nope. Nope, I'm not. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. (laughs) It's always my backup for those questions, actually. It's never the preferred route. I find it more interesting. I got to know a side of you that I didn't know all yeah. in these uh, 45 minutes so thank you thank you thank you so much for being You're open welcome. and uh, share this with me Dina